0: Let's pray together. As we go to prayer, one of those, as we call them around here, coincidences, is that the Lord, just in my own scripture reading early this morning, had me in Psalm 115, which is so appropriate to the songs that we have been singing, to the scripture that was read earlier, and to the message we're about to dig into. wish I had time to read the whole thing to you, Psalm 115, but at the end it says this, and my hope, my My prayer is that this will be our prayer as we come before the Lord together this morning, which is that we believe what it says at the end of Psalm 115, that the heavens are the heavens of the Lord, but the earth He has given to the sons of men. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But as for us, everybody say, but as for us, we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forever. Praise the Lord. Father, may that be the the cry of our heart, may that be the conviction of our soul, that as for us, Lord, whatever is going on around us, whatever is happening to us, whatever storms even may be stirring within us, as for us, we will commit to this one thing, we will be convinced of this one thing, and we will walk according to this one thing. As for us, we will bless the Lord. Father, because you are good, because as we've sung, you are great and mighty and powerful and holy, and Father, there's there's all sorts of things in our lives that come and go. Blessings come and go. Trials come and go. We walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We stand on the mountain of, uh, of spiritual triumph. Father, these are all part of each Christian's experience in life in their own way, but one thing never changes, and that is the greatness of our God and the worthiness of our Heavenly Father to be praised and exalted. One thing never changes, that is the the fact that Jesus Christ, who laid down his life, is worthy of our devotion, worthy of our surrender, having washed us clean from all our sin. Lord, we come before him again this morning saying we praise you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. We are so thankful, Jesus, that you have rescued us. And Father, because those things are too, true, because you are so great and Jesus is so merciful, we can, Father, in confidence, and entrust the trust of a little child to a heavenly Father. Father, we can yield now to you and say, Lord, have your way with our hearts, have your way in our lives. Teach us the things you want us to know and strengthen us to to leave this place and, and walk in the things that we've heard. Father, I need your help this morning just to make plain and make clear the truth of your word, to not be a distraction, but instead simply a help. One brother coming alongside the rest of our family in Christ here, to say this is what the Word says. Let's hear it and then walk in it. Father, that's what we want, and much more, it's what we need. So we ask, as always, when we come to this time, that You, the great God, our wonderful Heavenly Father, Jesus, our Savior, the Holy Spirit who lives within us, that You, Lord, would be our teacher and our guide. Father, we pray that for each one of us, we know it's true that as believers in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit lives within us, and we invite and we ask Him to be our teacher to come and guide us in truth, to guard us from error, to deliver us from pride on the one hand and indifference on the other. And in these moments, help us to see Jesus. Father, may we see Jesus clearly this morning in the teaching of your word. May we see Jesus only this morning in the teaching of your word. Father, may we have open and quiet but expectant hearts for what he's going to show us as we dig into it. And Father, in a little while when we leave, we want to leave rejoicing, not just because we came to church, not just because you've given us another beautiful June day, not even because all of the great things that are happening in our church right now, VBS and missionaries and all the other stuff that's happening, but Father, may we leave rejoicing because for a little while we had the great privilege to sit at the feet of Jesus, who loved us enough to lay his life down, and then he took it up again in victory. It's him we praise, and it is him now we seek, and it is in his name that we pray, the name of Jesus, all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. And as you're being seated, if there are some boys and girls for Children's Church this morning now, it's their opportunity to slip out that back door and go spend some time together in God's Word. And I'd invite the rest of you to take out your Bible as you settle back in there and turn in it with me again this morning to 1 Kings chapter 18. Turn to your Bible to 1 Kings chapter 18, where we are going to continue our look, our study through these summer months of the life and the ministry of God's servant, the prophet Elijah. And let me just say, as you're turning there, because it may take you a moment to find your way there, just, I don't know about you, but how encouraged I am. That was, we had earlier here, we had a wonderful time of worship, an incredible reading of scripture and And, you know, sometimes the announcements, they're one of those things we get through. But I think as I sat listening to all these things that Scott and Maggie and Ted and then Thad and the interns coming up here, man, I was just blessed because what it tells me is God is working in our church family Uh, all week. Yeah, that's right. And, And that's not to our credit. That's not to the credit of the staff or the elders or deacons or anybody else. God is moving. And this week, he's given us an incredible opportunity with Vacation Bible School. This summer with the interns, um, I've gotten to peek in on Wednesday Night Youth Group a couple of times, picking up my kids. And man, there's just, there's a lot of action and activity in the building. And I know it's more than that. I know God's working. Um, Just to see your joy here today, to hear your voices saying, God is good and he is faithful. And, And if you're not paying attention, it's time to start paying attention to the fact that he is, in fact, at work. And if we just listen for him and look for him, we will see him in all sorts. Of different ways. And one of the places, of course, we want to see him and we, we expect or we ought to expect to see him clearest is in his word and in the teaching of his word. So that's what we're going to do now in 1 Kings chapter 18. And we're going to pick up, uh, obviously, where we left off last Sunday, which was in the middle of the chapter, in just a moment. But before we read uh, the story that's in front of us, uh, I think it's important, particularly when we're working maybe through a, a, the, the life of a character, a character study, if you will, uh, just to take a half step Back because as we turn to today's episode in the life and the times of God's servant, the prophet Elijah, it really is vital to review where we have been so far. So we understand as we jump in what's happening and, and, and sort of get a sense of where we're headed. And what we've seen so far is this, and if you've been here the last three Sundays, this is review, but, but it's important just the same. What we've seen so far in the story of God's servant Elijah is this, that the Lord called him onto the scene in ancient Israel around 900 B.C., And at about that time in the nation of Israel, we've seen already that God's people were in one of the most, if not to that point, the most spiritually desolate season they had ever encountered since entering the land of Israel. Of promise. And Elijah, God's servant Elijah, was called onto that scene. He was specifically called, as we've seen the past three Sundays, to confront the fearsome adversaries, the, the, the rulers of the land, wicked King Ahab and his wife, wicked Queen Jezebel. He was called to go to them and to confront them and to begin uh, to be God's instrument in dealing with them and all the evil that they had brought to the land of Israel. And where we pick things up today, it's the same as last Sunday. Three full years have passed since Elijah's story began. And if you remember where it began, it was in chapter 17, verse 1. You don't need to turn there, but you ought to remember that in the first verse of Scripture where Elijah appeared on the scene, he came at the Lord's direction with a promise, with a prophecy. And he said, King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, it ain't going to rain there's not going to be rain or dew again until I come back according to the word of the Lord and say so. And so for three full years, that's exactly what happened. No rain in the land, no morning dew, drought and, and famine and, and all that comes with it. And as such, as you can begin to imagine. Where we picked the story back up this morning, after three full years of absolute total drought, things in the land of Israel, life in the land of Israel was about as bad as it could possibly get. Famine, starvation, death, disease, not a pretty place. We saw last Sunday it was particularly severe in the capital city of Samaria. Life in Israel was about, at this point, as bad as it could get. But what Elijah knew, where we picked the story up this morning, and and what he had been sent to tell King Ahab was that rain was actually, literally, on the horizon. That's what we saw last Sunday in chapter 18, verse 1. Look at it in your Bible, and then we'll, we'll, we'll move on from there. It says that after many days it happened that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, the third year of the drought and the famine, saying, go, show yourself to Ahab, for I will again send rain on the face of the earth but here's the thing here's the thing if Elijah had done that if he had simply God had given him the message Elijah had gone to the king he said time's up rains back it's on its way just as I said it would be and then it rained if God gave the word Elijah delivered the message and then it rained there's a problem Because if that's happened just in that sequence with nothing else in between, everybody in the land would have had an opinion on what brought the rain back. There'd be a remnant in the land, of course, because there was a remnant of believers who say, well, of course it was the Lord. We believe that that he did so. But everybody else, who would they have credited? They would have credited Baal, the storm god, the god in charge of the rain. Because it just came back. Well, everybody's going to believe what they think is right in their own eyes. And it's not going to be clear who really was responsible. Some might give credit to the one true God, but most would probably claim Baal was responsible. So here's the point, and here's where we're headed in God's word this morning. Something had to be done to make the rainmaker clear. Something had to happen to make absolutely certain who it was that sent rain on the land. And in doing so, as we're about to see this morning, call the entire nation to repentance because it was their sin that was responsible for the drought that they were in. In other words, what I'm saying to you this morning as we dig into God's word is ancient Israel needed an altar call. They needed a moment of conviction and decision, and in today's passage, which certainly uh, perhaps is the, the central episode in the entire Elijah narrative, it's certainly the one people who know his story know and remember best. That is exactly what they got. They got an altar call. It started in verse twenty. That's where I'm about to begin reading, and it goes down through verse forty. Where this is what the scripture says: First Kings eighteen, beginning in verse twenty. Elijah has reappeared. He's promised rain is on the way. So, verse twenty. Ahab the king sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together, the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. Elijah came near to all the people and he said, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now let them give us two oxen. And let them choose one ox for themselves and cut it up and place it on the wood, but put no fire under it, and I will prepare the other ox and lay it on the wood, and I will not put fire under it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I'll call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people said, that's a good idea. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose an ox for yourselves and prepare it. Do it first, for you are many, and call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. Then they took the ox, which was given them, and they prepared it, called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, "Oh Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they leaped about the altar, which they had made. It came about at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Call out with a loud voice, for he is a god. Either he's occupied or gone aside or on a journey or perhaps asleep and needs to be awakened. So they cried with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out on them. When midday was past, they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord which had been torn down. Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. So with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench around the altar, large enough to hold two measures of seed. Then he arranged the wood and cut the ox in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four pitchers with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. He said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time until the water flowed around the altar and filled the trench with water. Then at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench and when the people saw it they fell on their faces and they said the lord he is god the lord he is god then elijah said to them seize the prophets of baal do not let one of them escape so they seized them and elijah brought them down to the brook kishon and slew them there i don't know about you but that's one of my all time favorite bible stories There are a few stories in the Old or New Testament that I think are more significant, that are more exciting, that are more interesting than this one. And as such, I've spent this whole week going, what in the world am I supposed to say? Because there's all sorts of side roads I want to go down, and there's all sorts of insights I want to draw out, and there's all sorts of lessons and and ideas and interesting little trivia about this story that I want to bring. And there's just so much about this story I want to say. But for for our purposes this morning and of where I think the Lord wants us to go, I have managed, struggle though it has been, to narrow it down to four. Four specific things in this story, not just that I want to show you, but that I believe, having read and prayed it through, that the Lord wants us to see here. So that first of all, as always, we understand what His Word says, but then second of all, and in equal measure, we know what in the world we're supposed to do with it. So that it's not just an interesting bit of dramatic history of our faith but so that we see how it is relevant and even applies to our lives. So I think there are four things the Lord would have us see here this morning. Four things to give our attention to, starting with, number one, Israel's problem. And and although you understand this, if you've been here the last three weeks already, I believe it's absolutely important that we lay the foundation once again, that we understand first of all, that Israel, the nation, the people had a problem and it was the problem of divided loyalties. The first thing to see in the story is that Israel's problem was a problem of divided spiritual, religious loyalties, because here's the thing. Well, the text has made it clear already that, they, uh, that Ahab and Jezebel, they were all in for Baal, right? I mean, that is what they were all about. That is what they wanted as king and queen to impose on the land. Perhaps somewhat to our surprise, by contrast, the general population in the land wanted it both ways, as we're about to see and what I mean by that on the, is this, that on one hand, they wanted to continue to lay claim to people of God by the hundreds of thousands, maybe the millions at this point, wanted to continue laying claim to their historic identity as the chosen people of God. I mean, if you're the chosen people, you don't want to let go of that, right? But you want to claim that and stick to that. He is our God. We're his. He chose us. This is our land. They wanted to hold on to that. But at the very same time, certainly in equal measure, perhaps in the moment, uh, uh, truth be told even more, <laughs> They also wanted the thrills and chills that came with worshiping Baal. They wanted it both ways. They wanted to live and exist and move in two worlds. And Elijah's sermon in verse 21, note that it is exactly, at least in my Bible, 20 words in the English language. When Elijah spoke up, he didn't say much. He had short sermons, don't get any ideas. But he spoke up. And he gave a 20-word sermon, and that 20-English-word sermon was a clarion call, an absolute declaration to the people of Israel to make up their minds. Look at verse 21. How, he just asks a question. How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If it's Baal, follow him. Now, what's interesting, one of the interesting things about this is Elijah gave this sermon standing atop Mount Carmel, which fittingly at that point in time, literally stood between Phoenicia to the west, which was the cradle of Baalism, of Baal worship. That's the heartland of where all this Baal garbage came from. And and to the east was the land of Israel, the promised land, Yahweh's land, God's land. Mount Carmel stood fittingly between these two lands representing these two gods about whom the people of Israel were being called to make up their minds. And the literal challenge, again looking at verse 21, the literal challenge, Hebrew to English, that Elijah threw down before the people was this. It sounds funny, but when you think about it, you realize how appropriate it is. How long, he literally said, how long will you keep limping between two opinions? How long are you going to keep this game up of hopping back and forth? It's God, it's Baal, it's Baal, it's God. We want him, we want him, we want that, we want this. How long are you going to keep it up? You're trying to live in two worlds. You're trying to run two directions. You're trying to, as Jesus would later say, serve two masters. You're limping. You realize that's what you're doing, don't you? You're limping between two opinions. By trying to serve two masters, you're not going all out for either. And Elijah's message in verse 20 is that it is literally killing you. It's killing you to try to live that Way, you have a terminal case," he said, of divided loyalties. To which the rest of verse 21 says, "Look at it, your Bible again." The people did not answer him a word. Why? I don't know. Maybe they knew they were caught. Maybe it was a very real sense of conviction. Maybe they were confused. But whatever the case, Elijah's very simple, clear, 20-word sermon. By putting them to silence, also put them in the perfect position for the second thing I want you to see in the passage this morning, which was Elijah's challenge. Having called them out, having clarified their problem, divided loyalties, the second thing this passage tells us is that enabled Elijah as God's messenger, as God's prophet, to deliver the challenge. The challenge is very simple and clear. Decide who you're going to serve. That's it. So this whole story is about Israel, it is time for you, every man, woman, and child, to decide who you are going to serve. And the plan was nothing if not straightforward. And I think to satisfy our modern sensibilities, it was fair. Why? Because it was, this is how it went down. I mean, just look at the next several verses. You get an ox, I get an ox. You build an altar, I build an altar. You pray, I pray. Whoever's burns wins. That's it. That's how it's going to go down atop Mount Carmel and the idea of all of it of course being to once and for all settle the question whose God is the true God who's really running the show and therefore if he is whoever is the true God the corollary the outflow of that is is therefore whoever's God is the true God is worthy of our full devotion it's time to stop limping and make up your minds whose God is the true God And maybe somewhat to our surprise, after being silenced after his sermon in verse 21, in verse 24, the people say, game on! All right, that sounds, look at your Bible, that sounds like a good idea. Why? Why, after being silent a moment before, are they suddenly all in for Elijah's challenge? I think it's because, deep down inside, the people knew it really wasn't a fair fight. They thought they knew some things, I think, that They perhaps thought Elijah didn't because here's the thing about Baal. We've talked throughout this series already that that Baal was the god in charge of the what? The rain, right? He's the storm god. He sends and withholds rain. You know what else Baal was in charge of and everybody knew it? Baal was the god in charge of fire. He's the rain god and the fire god. His primary weapon is lightning. He sends fire when it pleases him according to their belief system. (laughs) They're thinking, fire from heaven? (laughs) Right on. Not only that, whether they thought Elijah knew it or not, Mount Carmel, Though, as I said a moment ago, it was situated between Baal country and Yahweh country, between Phoenicia and Israel. uh, To the followers of Baal, Mount Carmel was their home turf. This was a home game for them. They considered it among their most sacred grounds for the worship of Baal. Uh, uh, There was already, it seems, reading the text, perhaps already an altar to Baal there. And and, and then when you add to that or you couple that with the numeric imbalance we saw back, uh, back up earlier in verse 22, Elijah said, I alone am a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's got 450 guys on his side. What are the people thinking? Slam dunk, right? Not fair fight. We know how this is going to go. We know how it's going to work out. We know who's the projected winner. But you know, Israel's God had a little history with the fire thing too, didn't he? I mean, you remember something called the burning bush, right? You remember that, that then after the burning bush, as he led his people through the wilderness for 40 years, he led them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of what by night? Of fire. Fire. You know that if you've read your Bible that that in the tabernacle and then in the temple all day long, sacrifices and offerings are being made to the Lord on an altar. Sacrifices and offerings of fire. God had some history with this fire thing too. So here's my point. Something had to give up on Mount Carmel that day. Somebody was gonna win. And somebody was going to lose. And in the ensuing hours, that's exactly what would happen. Something would give. Something would become clear. The true God would be revealed. And the people would have to choose. By sunset, they'd all have to answer the third thing I want you to see. Number one, they have a problem. The problem is divided loyalties. Number two, Elijah delivers a challenge. It's time to decide who you're going to serve. And what the people had to answer, what they were going to be forced to decide, this is the third thing, was Mount Carmel's question. Here's the question. Said it already. Whose God is the true God? Whose God is the true God and therefore worthy of our devotion? Devotion of their devotion, and ours as well. Who is really running the show? As you know already, because we've read through the story, the question really was addressed and resolved... In the context of, of two altars up on top of that mountain, and we get the impression that, that most, if not all, the nation of Israel was there to witness what was going to happen. There were two altars, so let's start with the action at altar number one. The altar as it is presented to us first in the Bible that was dedicated and, and presented to Baal. And as we do that, as we turn our attention to that first altar, really, verses 25 through 29, where the, the prophets of Baal get their turn, there's one thing you need to know about Baal worship we haven't really talked about yet. But you need to know it because it tells you everything, really, you need to know about their religion or their faith and their practice, which is this, that in Baalism, the bottom line, the ultimate thing, the main thing was experience. Worshiping Baal was all about experience, physical experience, emotional experience, relational experience and more. Now that's not to say that our faith isn't experiential. It is. There is an experience dimension to knowing and worshiping the one true God and his son the Lord Jesus Christ. But here's the thing about Baalism. In Baalism, experience was ultimate. Experience was the main thing. Experience was really the only thing. And what else you need to know about Baalism is that the more audacious, the, the edgier, the more vibrant and colorful, dramatic, noisy, tumultuous the experience the better. It's all about experience, and the edgier, the better. That's why the primary task, you may not have known this, the primary task of those 450 prophets who are in this story, who, were, who Ahab and Jezebel had appointed to the temple, you know what their primary task was in the temple on a daily basis? These 450 men, it was to be called prostitutes. That was how you worshipped whenever you wanted to. And in the, the counterpart, the, the temple dedicated to Asher, where there were 400 female prophetess, same job. Experience was everything. The edgier, the more dramatic, the better. It's also why Baalism, as it metastasized through the years, ultimately resulted in the regular, repeated offering of human sacrifice, of infant sacrifice, of child sacrifice. They did it all the time. Why? Because the idea was this, that the more noise we make, The more colors we wave, the more experience there is, more sensory indulgence, the the more likely we are to get Baal's attention, and the more likely we are to sway him in our favor. And we all know the the truth, the reality of thrill-seeking, religious or otherwise, it's this, pretty soon what was extraordinary and audacious becomes ordinary, right? Right? And sooner or later, what, what used to thrill doesn't satisfy. And so what do you have to have? You have to have more. You've got to have a bigger thrill. You've got to have a higher high. You've got to have an edgier encounter or experience of whatever kind. And uh, until, as Francis Schaefer once said many years ago, what was once unthinkable is now thinkable. And not, not only thinkable, but acceptable. And not only acceptable, but normal. So we've got to do more. And we've got to go further. We got to keep going to keep the thrill alive, and the reason I take the time to spell that out is that's exactly what happened in these verses in the heart of this story. Look at your Bible, starting in verse twenty-two, excuse me, verse twenty-five. Everybody says it's a good idea, Elijah. We like your plan. Let's roll with it. So Elijah, verse twenty-five, says to the prophets of Baal, "Choose an ox for yourselves. Prepare it first for your many. You'll probably get it done faster." And here it is, call on the name of your God, but don't put any fire on it. Remember, we're waiting for fire from the sky. Call on the name of the Lord your God. So they took the ox which was given them, they prepared it, and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, three hours, saying, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. So what did they start to do? Look at the rest of the verse. They began to not just call, but to leap around the altar, prance around the altar, probably some sort of cultic dance they engaged in. Calling wasn't working, so they began dancing. That's when about noon, verse 27, Elijah mocked them and he said, the literal translation of this is great. He literally says to them, call out with a loud voice, right? For he, for he is a God, quote unquote. Literally what he says for either he's busy, he's going to the bathroom, he's on a trip, or he's asleep. That's what he says. Those are your options, people. So call louder. Maybe the door's closed and he can't hear you. Get into it, right? Experience, and that was all the incentive they need. So it says, verse 28, they cried. Remember, they go from calling to leaping to crying with a loud voice. And then what? Cutting themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And when midday was passed, when even that was not successful, they raved. That's not a positive, okay? They raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. Three more hours see the progression, see what's happening, call, leap, cry, cut, rave, plead, beg. And and if at that altar, as I was thinking about this, at the literal end of the day, at that altar, if someone were to come and and etch some sort of inscription on it, it could very easily, that inscription could have said, this altar that was dedicated to the worship and to calling on Baal, I believe that what altar number one could have said is this is a God who cannot be pleased. It's never enough. He can't be pleased. The altar to Baal was an altar to a god, to a deity, to a system which cannot be pleased. Verse 29 tells us so. There was no voice, no one answered, and no one even paid attention. Why? Because there's nobody there. You're never going to be satisfied because it's an illusion, it's a mask, it's a trick, it's a scheme, it's deception. This is a God who can't be pleased. Well, the scene around altar number two couldn't have been more different, couldn't have contrasted more, because in simple terms, what then unfolds, starting in verse 30, around altar number two, is you've got one single man, verse 30, Elijah, who says to all the people, come near to me, get in close, I want you to see what's about to happen. A a single man, who rather than raving, acted in simple reverence. And it says he took 12 stones, verse 31, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob. And with those stones, verse 32, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. Single man, simple reverence. And you know what he did? He stacked the deck against himself, (laughs) just to make it fun. He stacked the deck against himself in this way, verses 34 and 35. After arranging the wood, cutting the ox, and laying it on the word, he said, fill four pitchers with water. Now don't ask me where they got the water. I don't know, all right? There must have been a mountain stream or something, a spring of some kind. Whatever the case, let's not argue with the text. Let's go with what it says. He said, get four pitchers of water and fill them up. Dump them on the altar. And then he said, do it again. Dump them on the altar. Do it again a third time. Stacks the deck against himself. And then what does he do? He doesn't scream. He doesn't yell. He doesn't rant. He doesn't rave. He doesn't cut. He doesn't bleed. He simply spoke. Verse 36. Single man, simple reverence, stacks the deck and then he speaks, verse 36. Oh Lord, here's his prayer, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Today, let it be known that you are God in Israel that I'm your servant and I have done all these things. I didn't make it up in my own head. I did them at your own word. And then in verse 37, clearly seeking only God's fame, he continued, and this is what he says, answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know, not to vindicate me, but that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and you have turned their heart back again, through which he saw, along with everyone present in Israel, verse 38, the fire of the Lord fall from heaven, consume the burnt offering, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and it licked up the water, which was in the trench. Making it totally clear, absolutely clear to everyone present that unlike Baal, a God who cannot be pleased, this is, here's, here's the inscription, if, if the altar were still there, of course it's not anymore, but if it were, if it had remained, Elijah could have etched on it, the God who cannot be stopped. This is a God who cannot be stopped. You can deny him, you can hold him at a distance, you can pretend he's not there, but he can't be stopped. And that's the message, or one of the many messages. That, what I'm saying is, At that moment in time, that single moment, no one had to wonder who the the real God was anymore. A smoking crater in the ground sort of said it all. (laughs) It's Yahweh. It's Israel's God. Amazing. But before we jump to those final two verses and see sort of how the, the story all wraps up, at least for today, I want to offer you just a couple of takeaways a couple of lessons, as I suggested earlier, there are about a dozen that I think we could draw from here without even breaking a sweat, okay? But, I, but, but there's a couple that just as I really sort of meditated and thought and prayed through this passage that emerged to the surface. They may not be, I grant, they may not be the two biggest things you see here, but they're the two that came to my mind most clearly, in my heart most clearly to offer you this morning in view of this scene that's just unfolded, this, this question of Mount Carmel, whose God is the true God? There are two takeaways that I have for this morning from this classic Bible showdown. The first one is this. You're going to have to write this down because it's not going to be on the screen. The things that trouble us don't trouble the Lord. Did you know that? The things that trouble you that you carried in with you this morning, don't get me wrong, he cares compassionately, deeply for the things that trouble you, but he is not. The stuff that troubles you doesn't trouble him. Did you know that? It doesn't. Listen, when When Elijah did what God told him to do, he built the altar, cut the ox, laid the wood, and then started dumping water, God was not up in heaven going, no, 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 Elijah, don't make it hard, (laughs) right? God didn't begin to chew his fingernails and squirm on his throne and go, whoa, whoa, he's putting water on, he did it again. No sweat, no stress. Listen, if you're the God who can send fire from heaven, what's 12 buckets of water going to do to stop you? He's not troubled. Everybody else is thinking Elijah's setting himself up. Maybe even Elijah in his heart is thinking a little, uh, okay, Lord. Stuff that troubles us doesn't trouble God. He cares deeply. But listen, what I'm saying to you is he has never broken a sweat over the obstacles in your life, never. He hasn't and he won't because he doesn't need to, because he's God. So think about the troubles you carried in with yourself this morning, the financial troubles, the relational troubles, the mental troubles, the emotional troubles, the uh, whatever they are. We've all got troubles. God's not sweating. God's not troubled. In fact, what the Bible makes pretty clear, and in fact, I think this story illustrates it brilliantly, is that one of the primary reasons God orchestrates trouble in our life, okay? Uh, whether you go, whether where you go ordains or permits, I don't want to have that conversation this morning. We all face trouble. God's in charge of it all. Here's what I know. One of the primary reasons he does so is that so just like Elijah in this story, he can at the perfect moment display his glory in your story. Say, guess what? I am God, and this is not a problem for me but I have bigger plans because my ways are not your ways. My thoughts, he says, are not your thoughts. The stuff that troubles us doesn't trouble God. Is there water on your altar this morning? God's not worried. He's not. He has a plan. The second thing I'd offer you from this story, and once again, if you haven't figured it out already, you know that I'm always gonna go here. Listen, if that as a believer is what you want, You want the glory of God to be magnified in your story. You want God to show up in your troubles and your good stuff. You want God to be glorified in your life. I would suggest you pray like Elijah did in verse 36. I suggest if you want the glory of God to be magnified in your life, pray the way Elijah did in verse 36. Here's what I mean imagine in verses 37 as well. Imagine the possibilities. Think about this. Think about your life for a moment. If every day when you woke up, and I, listen, I know preachers talk like this and it sounds like fairy tale talk and nobody ever does it. How about you try it? And I try it too. If each morning when you woke up, and not just each morning at the beginning of each day, but throughout the day, before each appointment, phone call, play date, <laughs> lunch meeting, challenge, opportunity, obstacle, whatever, we simply, willingly, devotedly, humbly, prayed something like Elijah, prayed here, O oh Lord, verse 36, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you're God in my life. Today let it be known in my life that you are God and that I'm just your servant and, and I do the things I do according to your word. Just let it be known, Lord, in this lunch appointment that you're God and that I'm here on your business. Imagine the possibilities of what might happen if we took that eternal perspective into our ordinary lives. Who knows how many people, as it says in verse 37, would have their hearts turned back to him again because of it. Because really, the message this prophetic showdown delivers is that, listen to me, that seeing God's glory magnified in your story, who wants it? Who wants God to be glorified in their life? If you want God to be glorified in your life, here's the thing this message, this prophetic showdown delivers, that having God's glory magnified in your story is not. Everybody say it's not. It is not ultimately a matter of the depth of your faith, of the length of your faith, of the enthusiasm of your faith, of what everybody thinks about your faith. It's a matter of where your faith has been placed, the object of your faith. And if your faith is in God, it's all you need. It's all that matters. And that's what Elijah's calling them to Make up your mind. Where's your faith? Who do you trust? Who do you serve? Is your faith placed in the one who, in this instance, sent fire from heaven and consumed the the offering, the wood, the stones, the dust, and the water as well? Listen. Remember, James 5, 17, Elijah was a man just like us. The God who did this is the God of the believer who lives in you and who is for you. Imagine what he could do. Because in the final analysis, here's the last thing I want you to see and then we're done. In the final analysis, we've got the problem of divided loyalties, the challenge to decide who you'll serve, the question whose God is the true God. It's pretty clear by the end of verse 38. In the final analysis, really the, the whole point of this story is this, that spiritually speaking, neutrality is not an option. Did you know that? Spiritually speaking, neutrality, staying in the middle, trying to play both sides, is not an option. Because guess what I noticed in verse 39? No more limping. No more hesitating between two opinions. Look at what it says. The fire falls. It consumes everything. And when the people saw it, they did what you would do. They fell, and what I would do, they fell on their faces. They said, the Lord, he's God. The Lord, he is God. We get the message. That's some kind of altar call, don't you think? (laughs) Got everybody's attention led them to a place of decision. And by the way, if you feel like somebody should apologize for verse 40 because God doesn't do this, think this way anymore, when it says, seize the prophets of Baal, all 450, don't let them escape, take them down to the brook and slay them all. If you think somebody should apologize for that, think again. Because what they were doing actually was just carrying out the Old Testament provision for apostasy. People lead God's people astray. They die. They die. And remember, for 10, maybe 20 years at this point, these guys who were killed had been championing in the land false worship, child sacrifice, and cult prostitution, and more. This was the right thing to do. Don't get hung up on verse 40 and say, well, we got to apologize because God doesn't. No, no, no. If that makes us shudder, perhaps it's because we don't take sin, I don't take sin as seriously as God does. And he doesn't want it among his people. Because what was true in Israel circa 900 B.C. is still true in 2017. In matters of faith, neutrality is not an option. You can play it, but you can't stay there. You can't live there. certainly can't spiritually grow and prosper there. And frankly, truth be told, and listen, I say this humbly. I say this among you, not to you. Most of us spend an awful lot of time hesitating between two opinions. What do we want? (laughs) I want Jesus because he's taken me to heaven over here, right? Don't want to lose that and I believe that, but at the same time, in equal measure, and again, in the moment, sometimes more, I want as much of the world's affirmation and approval and accolades and material blessings and sensual pleasures as possible without, of course, crossing the line, but I want both. And maybe you do too. And Elijah says, you're killing yourself. You can't Keep it up. Are you limping between two opinions today in any way? I want Jesus in the end, but I want me right now. In this, in that, in whatever. If somewhere in your life an altar were to be built, what would be inscribed upon it? Who would it be dedicated to? It's a hard question, but it's an important one. Would it be Jesus Christ or an empty idol? How long will you hesitate Between two opinions, if the Lord is God, follow him. If it's Baal, follow him. God says, have your way, but but make up your mind. Somehow in grace, he gives us that option, that choice. Choice is the right word because neutrality to, to remain undecided is not an option. If the Lord is God, follow him. Let life flow from your theology say, well, how do I do that? Simple, same way you got started. Come back to the cross. Just come back to the cross. Not to get your salvation all over again, but because the one who died there for you stands there now for you as well. And he's ready and willing, the Bible tells us, to wash it all away, all over again, to wash you clean, to stand you up, to point you in the right direction. And what did he say? He said, just come follow me. Let's start over again. Let's go back to basics. Just follow me. Because if you, if you believe, I'm follow me. And if I'm not, go do your thing, but stop playing games. That's what he's saying. And in grace and mercy, he'll do all that. He'll wash us and restore us once again. And the bottom line that really determines whether we will do that or not is how deeply, truly we believe today's big idea, which is this. That Jesus is more than worthy of our total devotion. Jesus Christ is more than worthy of our total devotion devotion. And I would say to you once more that those who believe that and then begin to arrange and live their lives accordingly are like Elijah, the very best kind of zealots because God's glory shines in their lives and in their stories. And Father, wow, that's a lot, Father. It's a lot for us to process. It's a lot for us to deal with. It's a lot for us to respond to and to to make up our minds over Father, my prayer for my life and the life of my brothers and sisters here is that we would not be people who limp between two opinions, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. We'll take our Jesus insurance, but we'll live it up in the meantime in a way that doesn't. It's not, Lord, it's not that the world doesn't offer us good things, but but the main thing is to magnify Jesus Christ so others are drawn to him. Father, we have all eternity to, to celebrate and enjoy And embrace, it says at your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Father, but in the meantime, there's work to do. And you've called us to live in such a way that Christ is magnified through us. Father, I pray for those who even in this moment are hesitating between two opinions, saying, I I, I don't know if I can do it. Father, remind us that we can't. And that's why we need Jesus who can. Father, impress on us deeply the reality, the truth, not that I say so, but that your word says so, that your son Jesus is worthy, more than worthy of our full devotion. May we leave here today, Father, with a renewed passion to simply, fully follow him. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.